Welcome to Season 3, Episode 10 of Sports Life Balance. So what struck me as a, <laughs> as a student was, uh, you know, I pay the same taxes, my tuition is the same, um, and yet my access to the benefits of being a student here are limited in some very significant ways, in particular in sport. And so when you started looking at that, it just didn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. It's unfair, you know, for all the reasons that we have Title IX now. But at that time, we had to fight to actually to get access to the boathouse. We were using discarded men's equipment, which was very, you know, very heavy. The, the men's coach there was not at all supportive. The administration was not supportive. We had a volunteer coach, did his level best. But it was always, you're always fighting for everything. And this was true for women all around the country. That's Olympic rower Jan Palchikoff describing her struggle to get adequate training time at UCLA during the mid-1970s. I'm John Moffat, and welcome to Sports Life Balance. As always, thanks for joining us. Jan has been an athlete since she can remember. First a swimmer, and then once in college, she became a world-class rower. And like many other female college athletes around the country, Jan's freedom to pursue her Olympic dream was restricted. So, she chose to fight. Despite the obstacles, Jan made the 1976 Olympic team, placing fifth in the double skulls. But four years later, the struggle for athlete rights intensified when President Carter called for the boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. And once again, Jan and her fellow 1980 Olympic rowers took the lead, vehemently protesting the president's decision. Today, Jan continues her athletic greatness. She's broken numerous world records in Masters Cycling. She still rows with her 1980 Olympic crew. And yes, Jan is still fighting. Appreciating how far women's athletics have come, yet recognizing how far they still need to go. Jan, I am quite honored to have (laughs) you here on this occasion because you recently retired from your professional career at the Special Olympics. In That's fact, right. yeah. this is this is your first week as a retiree. How does it feel? It feels great so far. <laughs> I'm sure I'm <laughs> going to have plenty of things to keep me occupied. Yeah, you will have plenty to do, I'm sure. Um, so you were you were at the Special Olympics for 18 years, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about what the Special Olympics do for those who don't necessarily know and the roles that you played. Okay. And just a time-honored institution. Yeah, it's it's I think it's probably one of the most important organizations that um that came out in in some ways related to the civil rights movement in that this the approach to people with intellectual disabilities and how we perceive them and uh how the culture in the United States in particular treats them changed dramatically. I mean, the organization is just over 50 years old. Okay, so it was established in the early 70s? Early 60s. I'm sorry, early 60s. Mid 60s. Sorry, mid 60s. Yeah, I should know the exact date, but I'm terrible. That's okay. So, but it's, um, at that time, people were pretty much closeted and people were institutionalized. I think it was not too far removed from the time when they were still doing lobotomies. Um, And so the impact has been, if you think of, of a span of 50 years, now it's not uncommon for, you know, to see people in work settings. 
Um, People are included in ways that they never have been before. The health professions have paid much more attention to issues because they're different for people with intellectual disabilities. And there's a a way, and and it's important to know how to communicate um, in order to work well with the patient, right? Yeah. So... And and the other thing is just from a social standpoint, you have people now that instead of being put into small uh, or into clustered into schools, this is probably the best example, clustered into special schools, um, students are integrated throughout schools everywhere. And so they are part of the school community. Which, of course, helps them develop and grow. And everybody else. And everybody else. It helps everybody else, too. So it's... it's, um, the impact that the organization has had in a very, really, if you think about it, a short time span is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. What What else is remarkable is that your life, and we'll we'll talk about a little bit more of this later, but your whole life basically has been spent through the pursuit of, you know, civil rights and et cetera. So I, you know, I want to talk to you about Title IX and all that stuff. But yeah. before we get off the topic of the Special Olympics, you also got to work with a late decathlon gold medalist and legend Rafer Johnson, mm-hmm. who is it was was a fixture up until like just last year, um, a, a, like a, a diplomat, a politician, uh, a, a a Olympic and Paralympic pioneer, and then he was instrumental in founding the Special Olympics, correct? He was. He was involved with the Kennedy family, uh, was actually one of the bodyguards for Bobby Kennedy, um, and was there on the night that uh, Bobby Kennedy was shot, um, and was actually wrestled the weapon away from, um, from the murderer. And uh, he went into a huge depression after that, and it was... Um, Eunice Kennedy Schreiber, who basically summoned him and said, you've got to get out of this, and we we need you to work with us on this is that, project. Is, That's around the time. So it must have been, that was 68 is when the program yeah. was founded. Yeah. Wow. And so, so she, he had had a long association with the Kennedy family, I think primarily because he got um, uh, involved in the, the Robert Kennedy campaign, but remained a family friend. Uh, yeah, um, um, a lifelong friend of the Kennedys. And, yes. and I'm and the Shrivers, I, yeah. I, I urge anybody to go read and explore a little bit more about his life. He's because... an amazing human being. And I have to tell you, well, being a Bruin also, I'll just tell you a little story about him. Right. He, he um, I, well, first of all, I don't think I've met anyone more gracious than, than Rafer Johnson. And was maybe the best speaker I've ever heard. And I, I heard a story about how it was that he prepared for speeches because when he would he would come into a room and or you know to the dais getting ready to speak and the place would just go quiet you'd been to events like this uh, absolutely and and i talked to him one time i said how do you do that and a colleague had talked to him about this too and what he used to do was what he told us was that he kept notebooks and he kept notebooks with quotes and just thoughts that he had about and the notebooks were themed based on the feeling that he was trying to leave Oh wow! That he was that he wanted to provoke in the in the audience or yeah. leave with the audience, and so he always he prepared for speeches by thinking about the impact that he wanted to have at the end. What did he want them thinking when they left? Right. And so he his his presentations were always very succinct and on point mm-hmm. and quiet and very impactful. And 
that's how he did it. That was how he prepared for it. And um, I had the chance to watch him many times and had lots of conversations with him over the years. And But as a Bruin, um, the Bruins treated, they treat their Olympians really, really well, as right. I'm sure most institutions do. But they had a, a reunion, or a, it was sort of a reunion of UCLA Olympians, and they brought the the newly minted one. So this was mm-hmm. in 1976. And that's the first time that I got to meet Rafer. And he, you know, he knew my resume, my sport resume, wow. and what my background was as a student, which absolutely, you know, blew me away. I'm just, you know, this kid who had just come through this experience. Right. Right. But he, he, he goes, oh, no, I, I know all about your background. And, oh, wow. and, and over the years, that's how he you, and he made you feel like you were the only person in the room when you spoke to him, and that's how he was with I think with everybody. It, yes, and and uh, I used to go to the breakfast with Rafer events breakfast where champions, yeah. where you know it was basically a banquet, but for breakfast. And yeah, it was it was always quite inspiring, yeah. um, and um, and then. Also, you said that he's, you know, he's a fixture of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He's an Angelino through and through, but he was also just for the listeners who might not know this, he was the he lit the torch yep. at the opening ceremony of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics and yeah. you know, in the peristyle him him standing Fifty feet above yeah. like I <laughs> anyway, that's that's a, a, an a, an image that I yeah. will. I will never shake, and it is really kind of an embodiment of of who he was, and I think it's a great symbol. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, let's backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you as well are an Angelino. Um, well, Southern Californian. You're Culver City, I believe. Culver, right? yeah. Born yeah. and raised. Yeah. Right here in Ca- L.A. County. L.A. Yeah. County. Yeah. <laughs> so you're an Angelino. Um, so tell me about your beginning in your athletic journey. Um, when did you learn that you loved sports? Uh, probably when I was flying off of the jungle gym in our back year, backyard <laughs> uh, that was all sand uh, in Playa del Rey. Uh, the house is no longer there because it was part of the airport that the airport oh, right, right. brought out some of that stuff. It was uh, on Trask Avenue. And um, my grandfather managed to, I don't know how he did this, but he found some, there was uh, some school equipment that was being discarded. So he brought it over to our house. We had this wow. school, a playground kind of jungle gym, teeter-totter, you know, swings, the big ones that you can swing and jump off of. And we had all sand in the backyard. Wow. So we just spent all day out there. So that was part of it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you, were, you, you also, as a, a lot of Southern California kids, you also swam a lot, mm-hmm. and, right? Yep. In and out of the water. Yep. Um, Went through all the Red Cross swimming programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then eventually my dad came home one day. I think I was in the, I must have been like eight or nine years old. And he said, how'd you like to swim every day? And I said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so I joined a club called Blue Boy Swim School in uh, Santa Ana. And that's where I got my start. And wow. had, a, had a blast. Well, <clears throat> you know, if, that's okay. Eventually, all of your athletics led to you being a rower at mm-hmm. UCLA. How did how did rowing come about for you? Through a swimmer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Ann Simmons. Um, who Ann was, Simmons was my coach. Yeah, Ann Simmons was a teammate at UCLA. Yeah. And this was pre-Title IX days, but we were around the time that it was happening. So Ann and I were on the swim team together, 
And um, she, of course, she was, a, you know, fabulous swimmer. I was, you know, a tear down. 72 Olympian. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we had gone, um, I had gone all through age group swimming, you know, AAU swimming and all that. Um, so swam at UCLA and she, for several weeks, kept saying, she'd gone out for rowing and she kept saying, you know, we need, we need just one more person. Mm-hmm. We, we need, you know, like a couple more people. Won't you just do this? And I finally said, okay, I'll do okay. it once. <laughs> so I showed up, it was probably 530 in the morning. It was dark. Marina Del Rey, it was in February. Um, it was raining. It was, you know, miserable, miserable conditions. By Southern California standards. Oh yeah. They threw me, yeah. We had plunged into the, you know, the low fifties or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and they stuck me in the bow of the boat and this isn't an eight. So there are mm-hmm. eight people and I'm all the way in the bow. And they just said, just follow the person in front of you. Gave me no other instruction. <laughs> and, um, it's a little more complicated than that when all you're right. learning how to row, but, but I had a blast. I, I had a blast, and so I joined the team and never looked back, and I had no idea... <laughs> where it would lead. Where it would lead, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but um, yeah, I, so that was due to a swimmer. Thank uh, you, Ann. <laughs> thank you, Ann, and, and I know Ann very well. She was my coach throughout the end of high school, and she was my also club coach when I made the 1984 Oh, Olympics. how cool. Yeah, so Ann, I know Ann very well. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, she's one. Of, she's one of my favorites, and she's very persuasive. So I know, I know that aspect yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, you hit a juncture in your rowing career at UCLA, um, where you found yourself actually having to fight so that UCLA would enforce Title IX, which, which was federal law that was enacted in 1972. So at some point in the mid 70s, you realized that something was not equal with the men. So tell, tell me a little, give me a little bit background yeah, on that. Um, so here's how that came about. My involvement came about. I come from a very politically oriented family mm-hmm. and um, I'll just put it out there. It's tends to be left wing. My dad was a fundraiser. My, and my parents worked very hard fundraising in Orange County at the height of the John Birch Society right, right. as the fundraising uh, chairman for um, the Democratic Party. And um, we regularly talked politics around our dinner table. So this was something that was just part of how um, I was brought up and mm-hmm. how my family functioned. So I was active in, in high school, anti-war, anti-Vietnam War mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of stuff. I got involved in the Robert Kennedy campaign with my brother. And um, we actually were at the um, at the ambassador the night you that were. Kennedy... Yeah, we had just left. We were there as 17-year-old volunteer campaign workers. And and um, that was, that was oh. uh, uh, yeah, pretty pretty devastating. Pretty shocking for, for 17-year-old, for everybody. Very shocking, and uh, yeah. So, um, so as a student at UCLA, I entered in 1969 and as a freshman, and... At that point, women were, you had to, you know, if you think about it from a sports career, um, the, the thinking at that time was that girls topped out, they peaked at 16, 17. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was nothing after that. It was all downhill. Um, there were no scholarships. There were no real serious programs anywhere in the country. So you had a choice to make. It was, you know, you could stay and swim some more and not go to college, 
Or you could go to college and, you know, and just give up on your athletic career. Donna De Verona famously had to oh, quit yeah. her swimming career because she went to UCLA. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, um, there were many of us. There Actually, there were, we had a, a team that was pretty packed. It had, I don't think Donna was ever on it, but Pokey Watson yep. was on it. Yep. Um, uh, Karen Moe, she mm-hmm. came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, Ann was on it. Right. Um, Tony Hewitt. So we had, uh, Tony was a medalist, um, da, uh, Dana Sh- um, Schoenfeld, another medalist oh, right, right, from the yeah. Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. So these were all people that were at UCLA, and then there were others like me that were the wannabes. And <laughs> so we, um, you know, we were on a team, and we had to fight to get pool time. We didn't have access to the 50-meter to the pool at all then. It was through the women's gym, and it was just, you know, we had a volunteer coach and who did his best. Um, and, but it was hard to take it really very seriously. And yet there were a lot of us who still felt very serious about sport. And so it was this constant battle between why is this, why can't this be serious for me? At the same time, I'm, I got involved with the, um, um, uh, you know, really with, uh, the women's movement that was really active then. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, now it's around 69 through 72 or so. Yeah. And this is around the time that Title IX was really, uh, you know, the advocacy around it was becoming really important. And it wasn't just, you know, it was in colleges everywhere. There were people. Yeah. And um, so what struck me as a, <laughs> as a student was, uh, you know, I pay the same taxes. My tuition is the same. Um, and yet my access to the benefits of being a student here are limited in some very significant ways, in particular in sport. And so when you started looking at that, it just didn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. It's unfair, you know, for all the reasons that we have Title IX now. But at that time, we had to fight to actually to get access to the boathouse. We were using discarded men's equipment, which was very, you know, very heavy. The, the men's coach there was not at all supportive. The administration was not supportive. Um, we had a boatman, his name was Rigger Brown, who was very supportive and helped. We had a volunteer coach, did his level best. But it was always, you're always fighting for everything. And this right. was true for women all around the country with rowing in particular. I mean, it was with other sports also, but I'm more uh, familiar with the rowing right. part. So that's how I got involved in it. And I formed a group called um, <laughs> Union, uh, Union of Women Athletes. Right. And um, we started enlisting support. And did what we had to, used all the means we could within the university, using the ombuds office, the mm-hmm. um, academic senate, I think we even tried to deal with, um, any of the student groups that we could get to, um, and did a few little media things as yeah, well. Yeah, you had, you had press conferences to really try to shake things up. Right? Yeah, so our one of our big ones, the big one was we um, found out when Charles Young was going to announce the changes that UCLA was going to make as a result of Title IX, and um, we met th- that we our press conference was thirty minutes before his started, so all they just got there a little early, and then right. we got to present our case, which was that they had not really listened to any, they hadn't really involved any athletes in this, any oh, female right. athletes. There were a lot of holes in what they were going to do. It was they were good steps, but there was a lot to be done. So um, that that was kind of. That was it, and yeah. and um, and well, then after that, trying to get to events and all that, it was, 
you know, you can have the rules in place, the legislation. It takes years to make that stuff actually work. Yeah. And um, our first big test was really, uh, you said, okay, so what do we have to do to go to nationals? And we were given the list. Came back, we've done it. We're, you know, what do we need to do to secure the funding to do this? Oh, well, we don't really have any money for that. Oh. We really can't back that up. And I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe I should call those media people that, that responded before to us and let them know about this. And, you know, unless, of course, you might be able to find the funding for us. Why don't I come back this afternoon? And um, wow. the administrator that I was working with, um, Norman P. Miller, ended up, he, we were at loggerheads, but he was, you know, near his, near retirement. He was a completely different generation, just didn't get what was going on. And, but I have to say that after going through that experience with him and several others, we became friends over the years. And his retirement gift to the university was a brand new women's eight with the oars. There's a race named after him. It's the Norman. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. The wow. Norman P. Miller Cup race. Once he became, um, once he kind of got it, he really got on board. Well, he had to get out from under the bureau- existing bureaucracy as well. Well, yeah, right? but in in fairness, I mean, he was of a different generation, and mm. everybody. It's easy for me to say this now. At the time, I just thought he was, you know, he was <laughs> the enemy. Yeah. But he, you know, as a really good. Um, administrator in any university does, they realize that they're dealing with students who are in their formative years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you try and keep them on course, give them room to do what they need to do and and help when you can. But this was a real cultural thing, a real yeah, yeah. battle. And fortunately, you know, we came out of it okay. And um, but well, it, it was a fight. Well, you you actually were not satisfied with the progress that you were making through the press conferences no. and through the negotiations. So I believe you decided that you need to, needed to bring a formal complaint. I filed complaint, yes. A lawsuit. Uh, it wasn't a lawsuit. It you wasn't. filed complaint under, okay. under, the, under the regulations, which okay. were with the Department of Education at the time, or Health, Education, and Welfare. Now it's a different department. But... So I went through that process because I wanted to make sure that the university was going to make good on what it was doing. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was, one, and I wrote to the governor, the lieutenant governor, and all of my elected officials. And because they like to respond to their their um, constituents, especially on contemporary issues, they followed up with the university, and I was mm. copied on all of that correspondence. So I know that it was a little bit of a thorn in the side, but... Yeah. Um, it was well, interesting. It, it got it, it ended up um, well. Tell me what the um, what the results of your activism uh, following, you know, all the efforts that you made, and then um, the official um, complaint. Yeah, well, the complaint was eventually just dropped. I mean, I didn't drop it, but they felt that it, that, you know, that things were in place that were okay, um, and they were. It was uh, it was much better. You know, as as improvements were made, there were scholarships. So there were all these things that had to be that had to be done. There's but not a without a fight. To, not without a fight. I mean, you have, you know, it's all about resources, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> and then also there are the the cultural norms that you're fighting. So you have, you have um, an athletic establishment, and I will say now, having spent a career in sport, that maybe and and having been involved in activism for access to sport, especially for women. Um, I think the last bastion of resistance is still in athletics. Is it? Athletic departments. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's because there's so much, there, 
there are so many people in athletic departments that came up through, and I'm, you know, at that time anyway, it was football, and it was you had to kind of go through the College of Hard Knocks. There was no yeah. such thing as sports management training. Um, now there are degrees that people can you can get in many institutions. Yeah. At the time that I started grad school, because I did go after a degree, I got my master's in sport management. Mm-hmm. There were two places you could go. And I ended up going to um, UMass, which was one of the first places okay. to have an actual sport management program. So it wasn't even considered a profession. And so it really was, it was a good old boys network of the oh, right, highest right. order. And there were a lot of stereotypes. You know, if you, if you, um, if you do sports and you're a female, you're going to get muscles and, mm. you know, you get masculine if you do. So, I mean, all that, just all these stereotypes. So you're fighting that part of it too. And so from a generational standpoint, if you had people like me that were fighting to break norms, uh, standing against individuals in positions of power who, um, um, who are rooted in all of the tradition yeah. and their beliefs, you know, I'm on the outside. And anyone challenging a social norm is in that position. Yeah. And that's really what we were doing. I mean, but I can... You- Reflect but, on that now, but at yeah. the time, I was pissed off because yeah. you know we didn't. We were sleeping four to a room when we traveled. If we got to travel, we were shoestring budgets for everything, cramming into cars to carpool places, no access to the facilities. I mean, here's another one: swimming. Um, Bob Horn, bless his heart, he was the the swimming and water polo coach at UCLA. He knew of all. He knew all of us. Uh, that were swimming at UCLA, and he said, "Just come. You can work out with the men's team. Just come over here." And I and so we joined. We trained with the men's team after wow. a point yeah. when yeah. he saw that we were serious. In fact, Bob was the one who told me at a point. He goes, "Can I ever see anybody work so hard?" He goes, "Swimming." He goes, "You're really good at it, but it's not really. <laughs> you know, it's it's. You know, I could I can only go so far with it." He goes, "If you ever find your sport, you're going to be great." <laughs> I took up rowing. I saw him. <laughs> Uh, I think it was at the UCLA thing. He goes, "What did I tell you?" Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was Bob Horn. Yeah, I had all the wrong proportions. I've got long legs and a short torso, which oh, yeah. is the opposite of what you need for swimming. No, right? you need to you need to be part Neanderthal. To yeah, be, to be a good swimmer. But yeah. but in your in your fight, yeah. you, you weren't alone. There were there were women all, all, all over the place in, in yeah. all kinds of uh, of different sports. Yes. Yes. That weren't given access, That's equal right. access. Yeah. To this was just one this was one example. Yeah. But the irony is that in in implementing Title IX and for in universities trying to become compliant with Title IX, part of this was about numbers, right? How do you get equal numbers? Um, yeah. Rowing is one of the largest programs in any you know, at any university that's got a rowing team. You can instantly, I mean, you can you can add, equal the football team if you want to, which is one of the biggest users of resources and yeah. one of the biggest squads, right? Well, there's only men's football, right? So there's a, right. a in, inequity in just by numbers. Yeah. Right. So a real quick fix is add a rowing program. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening in a lot of places. And one really good example is University of Texas, Austin, brand new boathouse. This was, this was, um, I'm going to get the dates wrong, I think, but it had to be in the 90s because I'm thinking a friend of mine was the coach there. Um, Brand new state-of-the-art boathouse, brand new equipment, full scholarship program, the whole deal, and they hired one of the best people they could have at an actual 
respectable salary. And so Texas was was really a, kind yeah, of a leader in this. They were one of them, yeah. Okay. Oh, and well. then there were other schools that did it differently. I think Stanford had a different approach to how they were viewing revenue and non-revenue producing okay. sport um, versus, um, uh, you know, my dad used to always say, why don't you just have football be by itself mm-hmm. <laughs> and then everything else. Which is still... <laughs> A, a conversation that, that is being had yeah. even today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, but it was also viewed as a zero sum. And so women for, you know, all along, and it happens all that I've heard it from administrators, even in, uh, you know, in 2015, Donna and I were on a, Donna Deverone mm-hmm. and I were involved with the um, World Games for Special Olympics when they were in Los Angeles. Right. And I was on staff there and headed up all the athlete services, you know, venues, all of it, and sport. And and she was on her, uh, she was on the SOI board of directors, and I think she may have been on our board of directors too. But we were doing a tour of facilities and we're meeting with the UCLA people. And one of the guys in the athletic department said something about Title IX, and his comment was. Yeah, well, if we didn't have Title IX, then you know it's really that we've lost this one program because it's because of Title IX. We lost this men's program because of Title IX, which is how it's been portrayed. If, if yes, for women to succeed, men have to give something up. That's not which is which is not the it's not the case. It's not the spirit of Title IX. No, and Donna and I both just had a little conversation with him. Yeah. Afterwards, that well, said, you know, you're representing your institution, and you might want to know these few things. Well, <laughs> so. and, and they, he probably was talking about the men's UCLA swimming program, which was, um, I want to say it was the late 80s, mm-hmm. maybe early 90s. They were national champions, right? When, right. I mean, they were they were the <laughs> they were one of the greatest teams, yeah. of of our era, right? Right. And then they were just it, there was one day that the athletic director just said. You know, this is an easier fix than add more women. Let's take yeah. care of some men, which yeah. which is a horribly destructive thing to do for right. for athletics in general, not just men's athletics or the sport of swimming. Yeah, they've done it. It's happened in a lot of places where that was the fix. Yeah. Instead of getting creative with it, and there were I can't think of any example, other examples right now, but there was. There were, I, I mean, that that has been the classic yeah. battle. And it's still, it still it's is. Still, it, it still, still is. is. Yeah, men's yeah. gymnastics has really yeah. suffered from it. Men's, men's wrestling, and there's still uh, men's swimming programs that are 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 uh, going by the wayside uh, because of this. But well, and within rowing at UCLA, they ended up making UC, the women's team now a varsity sport and made the men's team a club. Oh well, see, that's a so perfect they flipped example. It. Yeah. yeah, and so you've it's it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it's it's there there there's still much much more fighting that is going to need to get done oh, to yeah. to really truly create an equitable system. But it's still come a long way since your era, and I oh, want to yeah. I want to I want to talk about that specifically yeah. a little later. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about um, probably in in my eyes the 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 most the most famous incident, not incident, the most famous activism that was involved with the Yale women's rowing team, which yep. was very much publicized. And they, as you, didn't they didn't have access to um, the boathouse or showers or anything. And keep in mind, this is this is the north. This is New England. Right, right. Winters are nasty and like yep. freezing. And they didn't. They weren't able to take a shower or get out of their their wet clothes. And they had to sit in the bus and wait for the men to shower and get into their dry clothes mm-hmm. before they could. And they were all getting sick. Anyway, this led to a very uh, unique 
uh, inc- not, I keep wanting to say incident. It was not an incident. It was activism. It was it activism, was activism. At, yeah, it, at, its, at its best and, yep. and most effective. So, yep. and many of these women were your teammates. At, at, yep. And the, they're still friends. Yep. yep. Well, tell, tell me about what they did. What they did is they went into the athletic director's office mm-hmm. and stripped and had on their bodies written, these are the bodies that, yeah. you know, that are freezing at the boathouse every day because, <laughs> because of the inequities at, the, at, you know, at Yale. And um, that made some headlines. <laughs> the next day, New York Times. Uh, yeah, and it got, it, that really sprung a lot of other people into action. So it, uh, there are a number of those people who were teammates in 76 and 80, 80 and yeah. are still friends. In right. fact, I'm working with one of them who um, is now a renowned orthopedist who's involved in some other things that we're, acti- that we're you know, addressing right now. Yeah. But um, yeah, just that was an amazing, an amazing thing to do. So well, where I was just holding a press conference, kind of, you know, sneaking in on the chancellor's big announcement, they were out there standing stripping. naked. <laughs> yeah, but again, you don't only plunge into the low 50s, so there's, it's not the same impact. As, well, it was indoors. Yeah. It was in the office. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, yes, well, that, that was courageous. It was, to say. yeah. This is what happens when people have nothing to lose. We'll be right back with Jan in just a minute. I want to tell you about our partner, Roka. I've been using their wetsuits and goggles and swimsuits for many, many years. Why? Because they design and manufacture the best gear money could buy. Roka also makes amazing eyeglasses and sunglasses, and they're designed for those of us who like to push the limit and want to look good doing it. Listen, I know this firsthand because I own a few pairs myself, and they're feather light, and they don't slip off my face no matter what I'm doing. And you can try them on at home. Roka will send you your choice of four frames, Check them out in the mirror and pick your favorite. And if you need prescription glasses like I do, just send your details to Roka with your online order and they'll customize the lenses for you. So go to roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter discount code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, S-L-B, to save 20% on all your orders. And that's for anything on their website. Happy exploring. And we're back with more Sports Life Balance. That was courageous. It was. To say. Yeah. This is what happens when people have nothing to lose. Yeah. That's really what this is about. They had nothing to lose. It's a yeah. great way. That's a great way to, yeah. to point that. Yeah. So the New York Times <laughs> article really made it a firebrand, mm-hmm. I think, for, um, for every, the everyday person that didn't understand the issue all the way to yeah. the uh, uh, female athletes across the country, to yeah. the universities across the country. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's why I bring it up, because it is, it's so notable, and, and I encourage anybody listening, go explore more about this. There yeah. are photographs. I mean, don't, they're, not, they're from the back and everything, but right. it, it, it's, it's a fascinating um, chapter in Title IX to explore. And um, it did have a happy ending. The next year, <laughs> it did, yes. And but the other thing that's that's so interesting to me about, um, you know, I've been in in rowing now since 1975, four, 74, and um, you know, then internationally starting in 1975, and and through all the years, the thing, this team, the 76 and 80 teams are really tight still. Mm-hmm. 76 was the first time women's rowing was on the Olympic program. And, but think about this. On that team were some of the, 
you know, some serious activists around Title IX. Yeah. And we had already had to fight a lot of big fights just to get where we were. So you get to 1980, and a lot of us were the same people. Yeah. And so it's it it really shouldn't be surprising that that group was at the forefront of challenging the government of the United States of America and Not led the anti boycott movement. Was the women's rowing team? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. <clears throat> Look, I was just a little squirt. I I, <laughs> I I I was still in high school, I, and all of this you would you would had you would become adults by by this point. Um, we like to think so. Yeah, and you and, and I want to I want to say that you you uh, you 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 got fifth in the double skulls in in yep. in uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how the women's rowing team reacted to first the proposal of the boycott and then the ultimate boy, boycott in 1980. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not well. <clears throat> no. It was um, we were in the middle of our training and selection camp in Princeton. Mm-hmm. Which was pretty intense because you go through, it's got roughly twice the number of people that are going to end up on a team. And so it really, uh, it was a gut punch um, to, to find out that this was a direction that the U.S. was taking. And the, the feeling was, you know, we had no support. Athletes then had no support other than what you could drum up yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know, my personal example was I was working... I was waiting tables at two restaurants and training about eight hours a day. And I was living, I had put an ad in the paper when I came to Princeton and said, um, you know, that I was training for the, trying to make the Olympic team and needed housing. And I would um, take housing in exchange for housework and cooking. And so that's, I had a, that's what happened. This woman responded and and she actually (laughs) wouldn't allow me to cook or do any housework. Um, And she just took me in. Great. And um, but I did have two restaurant jobs while uh-huh. I was training, so that was me. Everybody else was doing cobbling together some other similar circumstance. It was the same thing with me a few years later. Yeah. I mean, it was it was. Yeah. I mean, in fact, very few athletes continued after college because there was no support. there was no support. Yeah. yeah, and no opportunity. So this was it. I mean, you don't do you don't start rowing or at that point most sports for fame and fortune. Um, <laughs> it's be, for the love of the sport and personal challenge, you know, all those things. So, um, yeah, the reaction was not good. It felt like the rug had been pulled out from under us. Yeah. We had done everything we needed to do to be there. We, we held up our end of the deal. Our families held up our end of the deal. And then it's just taken away yeah. like that. And, 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 and the worst, and I think part of it also is that the United States government, could really only do that because they could take away our passports, and they mm-hmm. threatened the USOPC. Well, at that With point, the USOC, USOC yeah. mm-hmm. United States Olympic Committee, um, which was in the throes of trying to secure recognition as as the nation's, um, you know, as the the governing body for sport in the United States of right. America. This is before the Ted Stevens Act, so it was, or it was around. It wasn't before. It was in that era when the Ted Stevens Act was yeah. coming about which solidified and you know codified the role of the US Olympic Committee. So they weren't really prepared for a battle like this. No. And and they um, didn't have tons of resources. It was no. more ramshackle. They were in they were in used 
uh, decommissioned military barracks. I mean, it right. truly was a grassroots back then. Right. And so the and so what happened was at that when that decision was made, um, and and the USO the USOC voted on it, but it was, I mean. <laughs> Survival of the movement or don't send a team. Right. So the vote wasn't even close. Right. But I think now it's maybe hard. There are people that regretted going along with that at the time. But it, again, it's in the moment. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, the political rhetoric at the time was pretty vicious. It was. And there was really no understanding of what, what it took to be on an Olympic team. There, that was not something that people understood. They're only most people's experience of the games was to watch it on television and see, you know, Bob Mathias or or somebody on the on the um on the Wheaties box. Right. Um and and then the television coverage that came right around the games, but there wasn't like like they have now with real um you know, promotion yeah. of elite athletes and and the opportunities and the connection to and the culture and support, and support. financial support. It was way before any of the big sponsorship kind of deals. Yeah. Well, one one of your teammates <clears throat> really um, really rise, rose to the occasion, which is Anita de France, That's and, right. and became became the face. Yep. Of of the boycott. In fact, she filed a lawsuit on behalf of the 1980 Olympic team, mm-hmm. um, and there were 25 plaintiffs. Right. Were, were you one of those plaintiffs? No, they only could have 25. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they went down the alphabet. So, yeah, I think there was a limit on the number of plaintiffs they okay. could have. But, yeah, we were all um, – uh, so what was going on is, yeah, the the – there was a lot of discussion, of course, among the team. What could we do? We were determined to go through the selection. However, the impact was pretty significant. I already said that there were – you probably have maybe twice the number of people in the selection pool as uh-huh. will be selected. Some of those people self-eliminated. Absolutely. They had injuries that they were just kind of nursing along and had career plans they'd put off for education, and they mm-hmm. just said, I'm not re- – I just don't want to do this. Same I'm thing so happened in swimming. deflated. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it happened in all the sports. So we lost a lot of athletes, lost a lot of talent, and I'm sure there was – I know there was a lot of bitterness. And then – so the rest of us that are left are going through selection, but it was – you had to just put all this stuff out of your mind. And with um, selection in rowing, it's pretty brutal in a camp. You're going – you are pitted against one another um, multiple times during the day in different combinations in a process called seat racing. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be – and with and with, with rowing, you have to – you're judged not only on your individual fitness, but how you blend as a team. Right. How fast you make the boat. How fast you make the boat, yeah. which requires that you are a teammate. So it's this dichotomy that's that's um, pretty can be very challenging and interesting <laughs> to yeah, navigate. Yeah, and, and the dinner table, then who you, you might be seat racing against across from it. Yep. yep tense. Yep. Yeah, very yeah. tense. Yeah. So it's it's a very difficult, physically, emotionally, intellectually challenging um, time. And then you add on to this that, no, you're not going to the games, but we're going to fight it anyway. So yeah. we fought it all the way. We did everything that we could. There were, you know, of course, letters, petitions. Um, uh, Anita was at the forefront. She received hate mail that you would – it was – it was disgusting, the kind of stuff that she was receiving at the time that she was also trying to train and still make the team. She just she just wants to compete. Yes, everybody did. That's it. It's right? just we That's did our I- again. We did our end of the deal. 
this is it. And we had we were met with the kind of comments that we got from the public. Well, oh, stop being such crybabies. You're just doing this because you're not going to make money. Or, you know, just come back. So don't do it this time. Come back next year. Well, we all know how that works yeah. for athletes. It, it's yeah. <laughs> the planets have to align. You have to stay healthy physically and, you know, medically yep. healthy and mm-hmm. be at your peak during selection and at the games in order to achieve your, your best results. It's difficult, needless it's to say. It's difficult. <laughs> yes. There are a lot of things that have to go the right way. Yeah. So, well, it, so it was, it got really ugly. And we actually challenged right up until there was a selection regatta. Um, for the Europeans, anyway, there's they go. They were being judged still at different points um, in Lucerne. That was mm-hmm. the last regatta um, at the Rotsi, and um, there were teams there that were still under selection. The New mm-hmm. Zealanders. They found out then, which was I think it was two weeks or a week before opening ceremonies, oh. that they were not going. Oh. That's when they found out. At least. We had we kind of knew this earlier, but we were still fighting. But uh, Tommy Keller, who was the president of FISA, the International Rowing Federation, was a real advocate for us mm-hmm. also uh, in his way. Um, he was on the Swiss team that boycotted in 1956 with the invasion of um, when the Russians invaded um, Hungary. Okay. Yeah, so the Swiss team, they boycotted. So he had already been through that and also did not agree that this was a way to do things. Right. Um, and we were trying to go under the IOC flag to compete under the IOC flag, and they wouldn't let us do which it. Which a number of countries ultimately Have did. Have since no, done. Noteworthy of which, which um, was Great Britain. Yeah. <clears throat> so there are. It, it's something that you can do, but we weren't allowed to do it yeah. for some. I don't know what, what all the machinations were, but it was denied. So uh, Anita and I and another friend spent opening ceremonies drinking gigantic bottles of Retsina on a Greek island on a beach in a cheap hotel, <laughs> drinking Retsina. At the, at the same time as the, uh, as the Moscow the, opening yep. ceremonies. Yep, yep. But you, but you also, I mean, you also went to the White House, which yep. I believe was in end of July, yeah, beginning you, of you, August. Yeah. So It was after the Olympic Games. <clears throat> I think it was after the games. It had to be because this was, yeah, the games were early because it was it's colder in Moscow. So I think it was in July. We must have been in August. I think that's what it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. But but you, as a, oh gosh, how, how, do you, how do I say it gently? Don't say it gently. Okay. No, as a, as a token. Yeah. Basically, okay, here yeah. you go, guys. We're sorry. Yeah, they had, there was, let's right. have you, let's have you be our guests at the White House and then we'll be, we'll be done with you and yeah. stop your complaining, right? Yeah. Isn't that kind of the, well, there was a whole week. I think the USOC was trying to do something to celebrate that teams had been selected, even though we were not then recognized as Olympians. We still are in internationally. Internationally, we're not, right. Yeah. So we got, we went to Washington. They had us process and we got some of the uniform gear we would have gotten. Yeah. So you went through some of the things that you would have gone through. Um, they had a, you know, a party. There was a concert that was done for, you know, there were events like that. And yeah. then there was a reception at the White House. And um, at the, you know, and so the whole team was there and, you know, there were speeches made. I have no, rem- no memory of what was said, but you had also had the opportunity for the team to come up and have a photograph with the, um, uh, with Jimmy Carter. And, yeah, right, right. And I think the rowing team may have been the only one that didn't do it. There were a couple of individuals that did, mm-hmm. but as a team. You didn't do it. No. And yeah. we also came with buttons 
or stickers that said, we're here so that this never happens again. We had T-shirts made that were great. I think I've still got mine. It said, um, you know, you, uh, 1980 rowing team. And then on the back, it said, um, threat to national security. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So we, j- we had our protests. We had media following us around too, wondering yeah. if we were, what are you going to do? It's like, <laughs> you're seeing, you're watching it. We're here. So yeah. you know that we exist, uh-huh. but we are not participating in part of this charade. And, um, you know, we're going to participate on our own terms. Yeah. And, and, and part of the insult to injury were these medals that we received. And <sighs> if you ever want, if you ever want to make a bunch of Olympic athletes mad, give them an honorary gold medal, a medal for not going to the Olympic. Exactly. Games. Um, yeah. Uh, it was ridiculous. Well, and then, and then I've, I've, I've listened to both Jimmy Carter's speeches. He, mm-hmm. we, the swim team, we came after the week after. We didn't get to even do the the um, the celebration. Oh, with, you didn't. No, yeah. we went afterwards, and we had a, a had a private in a private room in the White House. We, you know, met the president, and basically he stood there and he shook his hand. But you know, we received these these medals, mm-hmm. and yeah. and in both of the speeches of Jimmy Carter, he never mentioned that they were congressional gold medals. Right. Congress had voted almost unanimously. To bestow us with the highest honor yeah. that that the Congress can bestow on for not a going citizen. to the Olympic Games, right. yeah. So yeah. Anyway, there's a there's a lot of uh, emblematic kind of issues that yeah, yeah. are happening with those with those medals, and right. I really to this day I don't quite know how I feel about it. Yeah, I don't either. Although they finally were recognized, I remember the president yeah. of USOPC, now U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, there was a letter that we all got and yeah. it was said, yes, these are, are congressional gold medals and it yeah. didn't change. It was a swimmer that, it was a yeah. swimmer that found, that figured it out. Really? Yeah. A guy named Ron Nugent. Yeah. Okay. So, but in, in any event, it was nice. It was a nice gesture. And the USOPC has also made a display at the, you know, at the new at the museum, museum, which is about the Olympic team, which I think is really important. It is really, really important. Yeah. And I've. I've received a lot of uh, people saying, oh, "I saw your name on the on the uh, exhibit about the 1980 uh, boycott," yeah. and it's like yeah. each each one of our names yeah. are, are on the wall, and it's a permanent exhibit. So yeah. that we're making progress, just like yeah. you were making progress. Of course, there it, were so many people that there were. I mean, a lot of people. I'm sure you know some too that were just really damaged by this. It just oh. it was such a betrayal. It was a really hard thing for people to recover from. I know people that just never did. They walked away from sport altogether. Absolutely. Um, they had real um, mental health issues. Um, you know, and that was at a time when mental health and athletes were not in the same sentence. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> let alone trying to have it addressed. And there were no resources whatsoever to help people cope with, with this, you know, betrayal that uh, a lot of, most of our compatriots, because of the stature of the Olympic movement at that point in the United States, thought more about it from the standpoint of, you know, again, it's this exceptional thing. And therefore, it can't really have that much impact on yeah. anybody. Just get over it. Sports has a huge impact on on lives. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, it really does. It does in very fundamental ways. And you know, I've often said, and this this is the thing that has motivated me throughout my entire career, and at probably from the time I was very young, although I didn't have words for it then. This is how I express myself. Athletes express themselves through sport. Yeah. 
And to me, it's on the same level as any other form of self-expression. And it's not treated like that. It's not understood in that way. No, and so when it's denied a person, it's like saying to a painter, I'm sorry, you are not allowed to paint. Um, or a singer, or, or, sorry, or not, sorry, they, you, you may not sing. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You may yeah. not sing. Yeah. You may not paint. You may not write. It's the same thing. Yeah, and it's so fundamental. I know for me personally, as as um, you know, it's just part of my makeup. It's what I've been doing since I was, you know, flying off of a jungle gym in my backyard. To say the least, I'm still doing it now, <laughs> flying off of bicycles. Uh, but I'm, you know, I still train and race in rowing. I took up cycling. I'm going back to swimming now that I'm retired. I'm actually going to get back in the pool again because I have more time. But it's, it's. You know, for me, it's obviously something that's very important. And I imagine I'm not alone. There are many millions of people who find great a great deal of satisfaction and use sport as it's a form of self-expression. And everyone should have access to it. That's that's a great way to, to say that. Um, so, yes, you have... You you have um, spent your life pursuing various <laughs> <laughs> various competitions. I, I believe you retired after 1980. You were one of the many many. I did. Big... I tried. Went on for another year. I was contemplating. I'd taken up coaching. I was coaching at Syracuse, but I had a real. I had an issue with my back and mm. felt like I couldn't. Um, I couldn't do the training that I needed to. Mm-hmm. Now I would. Now knowing what we know about. You know, there's just so much more known about so um, much more, so much more about uh, sports science. There were ways I could have gotten around that. I think I just wasn't motivated anymore. Oh no, to no do yeah, it. That, that, yeah. I, I, I probably am in that same category as yeah. is most people in yeah. in in our era. But I didn't give up rowing. I just wasn't training like a maniac anymore. So, so what what is it about training and competition that keeps you so motivated? What is what is it about? Jan it's Palchikoff? fun. Yeah, it's just plain fun. Feels good. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's so much fun. You race people even when they don't know you're racing them. Mm-hmm. I had this doubles partner, Margie Kate, and I used to, we raced a lot together and, and as masters. And she was on the national team a little bit after I was. And But then we um, uh, ended up in the same club here in Los Angeles and trained and raced together for many years. And there was a, uh, we had often experiences where we'd be out in the double and there'd be some of the, the college crews that were going out and, you know, and we'd just sort of up the effort a little bit yeah, without yeah. even, didn't even have to you, say anything to each other. And then pretty soon you're on the boats alongside and it's like, we're going to freaking crush them. Yep. And, you know, and, which you could because, <laughs> you know, they were still learning how to row. <laughs> well, so, and it was especially gratifying when they were a bunch of you know, guys who thought, well, there's two girls, we can do whatever we want. And uh, just keep them behind you, keep them behind you. If you haven't had your butt kicked by a woman <laughs> or a girl, then you haven't put put yourself up against yeah. a real and it's, uh, female athlete. It's really, it's so funny though that, that it, but, but that wasn't the, the motivation was more, if there's anybody that was within the vicinity, you're sure. going to, you're just going to race them. You just can't DNA. help yourself. It's yeah, that's true. true. I know you do that in the pool. You know, even I, though I try, I try, I try to not to do it very often, but yeah. Um, but that's why it's just it's fun. I find it um, in rowing, in particular, well, in cycling, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Being on a bike, um, uh, every pedal stroke or every stroke is a chance to achieve perfection. Yeah, and it, same in swimming. I mean, mm-hmm. it just you know it it's a meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helped me focus. I mean, I'm 
I rarely am thinking, I mean, I don't think about anything else other than what I'm doing. And so I think it's, um, it's an important skill to have also to be able to focus on what you're doing. And then when you're not doing that, you leave it alone and you focus on the other thing because you can't do anything about either one of them except when you're in the moment with it. Right. Yeah. That's so true. (laughs) So, um, so I find it, um, physically challenging, intellectually challenging. It makes me feel good. Um, except when I get hurt. Um, but that's, that's just part of all sport, right? Every sport has, has that sort of thing. That's true. And, and this, 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 um, seeking out fun, the fun of sports Mm -hmm. like that you, you talk about, it's led you to break world records in, (laughs) in in cycling. In in master cycling, age group master cycling. cycling. I mean, that's extraordinary. Um, yes. I'm I'm on the older end. There aren't a whole lot of women in my age category that want to be racing on bikes, um, which is uh, partly because it's not it's not something that's necessarily promoted very mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And there's just going to be some attrition, right? Yeah. Um, people grow up, but I have never grown up with respect to sport. If there's a finish line and a stopwatch involved, or other people trying to get to the finish line at the same time I am, it's like. There's nothing more motivating. Well, to to keep you honest, too, let's <laughs> let's talk about your world record in the hour time trial. Uh, okay. <laughs> to keep you honest, in when you when you broke that world record, mm-hmm. it's in the sixty to sixty four uh, mm-hmm. age age group. Mm-hmm. You were the fastest woman in history of masters cycling, except for like the thirty to thirty five. Yeah, I went. So the hour record is you. It's it always lasts an hour. So it's and it's on it's, a velodrome. It's a on the velodrome, an indoor uh, track. Yeah, and or it could be an outdoor track, but it's on a track. And what you're trying to achieve is the greatest distance. How far can you go? So mm-hmm. at the time that I broke that record, I was sixty three, I think, and I broke. I the I went the farthest at any woman had gone in who was 30 and older so around the time that I did my record is around the time that they it was a couple years after they had standardized the equipment okay so there was more interest in doing it so now there there's been much more interest at an elite level so there have been maybe seven or eight women who have I mean they've been you know, just each one goes farther. They're just astounding. And then, of course, with the men's record, it's gone. And there still are age group records. So I set two more. <laughs> I set one in in the in the next age group, and then in my current age group, which was in January, and that's seventy to seventy four. So I set it last January. And what's great, though, um, friends of mine who are younger came up and broke my record. But they had to pay for it. And they went to Mexico to do it. So they did it at they altitude. They did it at altitude. Mine right. was at sea level. And one of them she said, Man, that was hard. She goes, You I go, good. You know, that's the idea. You go as far as you can and you want others to be challenged by it. There, there's a there's a great video on YouTube of uh-huh. you breaking um, breaking that world record. Oh. <laughs> a couple of notable things that I would like to bring up is that <laughs> okay. First of all, your average was forty one point one kilometers per hour for the entire hour yeah that is in excess to give you context of over 25 miles per hour right right. and i mean look (laughs) most people cannot get up to 25 miles an hour and sustain it for much more than a few seconds yeah so it's that's extraordinary but I laughed out loud. I mean, first of all, it's it's a great it's a great watch. Watching you do this, it's just it's a beautiful feat. And it's not but, a whole hour. You don't have to watch the whole hour. No, you no, it's ten minutes. Yeah. And and you, 
<laughs> you're on the bike and you, you know, you're, you're, you're strapped in. So somebody's holding you and you turn to him and you go, holy moly. <laughs> oh, when I'm getting off the yeah, bike. When you're yeah. getting off the bike. And I love it. It just expressed like everything there is about really like putting everything you have in your yeah, soul. It's- and your spirit toward getting something like that. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary. I, I my coach thinks that I'm nuts because, and he's actually coached me to three of these. And, um, and by the way, I have figured out how much distance I lose from year to year, and it averages it's somewhere around 200 meters a year. You give okay, up just, per year, okay, just in age. I actually trained better for the last one and went less. You know, uh huh. You know, so it. So that's a little frustrating because you want to think, well, I'll just train harder and I'll get there. No, age starts to play into yeah. it. But I still have the record. So, um, But the fun thing, so the preparation for the hour is you have to learn how to pace. And you have to learn how to, and, it, and on a track bike, there's only one gear. So you have to figure out what the gear ratio is. And it's fixed. And so it's if fixed. the back wheel is turning, the pedals are turning. It's always, yeah, you cannot, yeah. you don't get to stop pedaling. And no brakes. No brakes. And you're in a narrow position that you hold for the entire hour. So all that stuff are the things you're working on. And the idea is to find the right gear ratio and find the right lap times and do negative splits so that by the end, you have spent everything. Yeah. If you spend it too early, that's when you see mostly there are a lot of records have failed. Attempts have failed because they went too hard at the beginning. Or they would have had a, a circumstance where, <laughs> where they really just weren't. They, they didn't know how to. They just couldn't space out the the energy. Yeah. So you start off pretty slow, but so the idea is the first thirty minutes, and especially the first ten, it feels like oh my god, yeah, I got to put more effort. This is too easy. But if you if you you do not resist that urge, you pay for it. Absolutely. Because at thirty yeah. minutes in, it's like, oh, this is getting uncomfortable. You still got thirty minutes to go. In the aero bars, yeah. and and the gears aren't. It's not getting any lighter. And then you get to forty minutes, and that's like that's when. Yeah. So at thirty minutes, you know, up the effort just a little bit. Yeah. So maybe you drop another half second at most off of your lap times, and then at forty minutes, that's when it. That's the that's when the moment of truth. That's, spicy. That yes, <laughs> that is the moment of truth where it you start feeling it everywhere, and if you have gone too deep. You are gonna you're gonna tank out right there, and you just yeah. it all falls apart. If not, it's like okay, squeak it up just a little bit, and then the last ten minutes are just it's just whatever you have left, and yeah. people are rocking and rolling on the bike, and you're just like whatever it takes to get through all that thing. <laughs> and then you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember having this feeling that um, you know you're sitting in that on that seat for a long t- time, so. Let's be honest, the southern regions of the body get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there is no way that is going to stand between me and this freaking record. Just get through just it. Get through the pain. So just yeah, get yeah. through it's it. It's temporary. There's a saying, at least in swimming, yes. pain is temporary. Same thing with rowing. I used okay. to get like tunnel vision the last yeah. 200 meters, yeah. like looking through a straw. And and that's just your system shutting and that, down. And when, when you stop, then it doesn't hurt anymore and you get your vision back. That's when you get the holy moly from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also you also yeah. are spending some time rowing and I I know I was at the head of the Charles last year. And I know you were there the 1980 with the 1980 Olympic rowers. Yeah. And you were you were in a boat and yes. you were rowing and yes. you do this quite often. I mean, I've you're been, still very close. Yep. The team is very close and I think this 
I think I've rode in the head of the Charles since I was a grad student, 77, until now, every year, excepting maybe seven years I didn't mm, make it. I was wow. having kids or had, you know, I think tracks, track cycling, there were some conflicts with that. So, But, yeah, the team, um, it's the same people who get together. It's yeah. a, this collection of people from the 76 and 80. Now it's gotten larger. We now will take, but you're, it, it, and now we're long enough in the sport where they've got age groups now. So we, for a long time could basically kick butt on the, you know, on the whoever. And then we, we got out of that, couldn't do that anymore. So then we advanced to the next age group and now you kind of now we can hardly wait to get to the next age group. Oh right, right. <laughs> age up. <laughs> yeah, so we got a ringer in the boat. It's all done by age average for the boat. Okay. So okay. Um, I think I'm the senior member. But yeah, it's great. The fun thing is that, um, like you said about swimming, you don't forget about what it feels like to be in the water, and you don't lose that technique. Uh, all of us were trained with the same kind of technique by the same coaches, mm-hmm. and so we can easily jump in and out of boats together and within 10 minutes make the boat go really well. So we've had some really great, really great um, races and often have won many times not, but really good racing. It's really a lot of fun. And another thing that you don't forget is the very tight bond that all of the, uh, for, for me, the 1980 Olympians and my, on the swim team, we feel for one another. Yes. And I think that there's a universal in that. There's a very, uh, it's a deep connection. I think it's having that we all went through such a horrible time together yeah, and yeah. such um, controversy. It was personally challenging for so many. And, um, you know, adversity sometimes breeds some gifts. And I think that that, if there were gifts from 1980, that was, there were a lot of them from yeah. those friendships. Agreed. I, yeah. I, I was, I had that experience last weekend, in fact. Um, fantastic. My good friend and 1980 um, swim teammate who held the world record in the 200 butterfly uh, broke the world record at the Olympic trials um, and would have won a gold by a second and a half in, in Moscow. His name is Craig Beardsley. And he was finally, after all of these years, you know, he was he's one of the greats of our era. Finally, he was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame and in Fort Lauderdale. And and 22 of our teammates showed up for the ceremony. That and is so cool. It's so cool. And so many of them I hadn't seen in decades and decades. Like, yeah, it was, yeah. it was quite extraordinary. And I'm in, I'm in awe about how amazingly close all of us remain, even after decades of us being, you know, like a part of this team that in so many ways didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. But yet, but yet it does because. We, we didn't get forged. the culminating experience. That's right. what happened. It, and nobody got to really go through and test themselves. And that was that was really, you know, for an athlete, that's a tragedy. To the rest of the world, that's not a tragedy. That's looking at someone who, you know, they might even call privilege because you're in the sport, you get to do these things. But as an individual human being that's invested so much into that preparation, it's a huge loss. And... Um, uh, you know, you just, and that's what is part of athletics, right? Is competing. And that was, again, the self-expression, you get to do it, but it's wonderful that you're connected with, you know, with the swim team. 
I would venture to say that all the sports have similar connections. They probably do, yeah. Of the boycott summer. Yeah, we're lucky because with rowing, we've got the head of the Charles, which is the largest regatta in the world. It's three days, over 10,000 competitors. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. There is a three-mile race, timed course, and there are... Um, boats leaving the starting line literally every 10 seconds. It's, it's an in extraordinary hours. event. And maybe, I think I've seen figures for the spectators, and depending on the weather, it will range from three quarters of a million to a million spectators so over the weekend. It's really, the banks are packed. It's really fun. So it's a big reunion. So we mm-hmm. have this built-in reunion right. every year. And, um, you know, so we're lucky with that. Yeah, and and another interesting thing that I find interesting in you is that is that you share your passion for sports and the Olympics with your husband Wayne. Yeah, uh, Wayne Wilson. <laughs> I actually got to know Wayne before I got to know you because he was the archivist and librarian, I believe, was his his official titles at the biggest library, um, Olympic uh, history library outside of Lausanne, Switzerland, which yep. is which is home of the IOC. Um, and it's called the LA 84 Foundation, and it was it, it was it was created through the proceeds of the 19 of the 84 games, 84 yeah. games, yeah. So, and and he he was there for more than more than 30 years. So, it's, well, he it's, actually uh, just to give him some kudos here, yeah. he actually was hired um, and he helped create the collection. And was involved in the design of the building also. It's such a beautiful building. Yeah, so he he was involved in the creation of that. It became the, you know, to your point, the best um, sports library in the world. And now it's all digitized, so the books are all gone. But he led that. That was groundbreaking also. I remember him doing that 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah so they've, yeah. and yeah, so that was, he had a, a terrific career there. So, so what are you two going, he's retired and yeah. now you just caught up with him. What are you two going to do now that you're retired? Well, if I can rip him away from Hallmark movie viewing, <laughs> <laughs> no, he's trying to, he's trying to qualify for the Boston marathon again. He wants oh, to do that. And we'll, so we'll be traveling and, um, indulge an in interest in astronomy, actually be able to go. And we have a telescope that I kind of roped us into getting through a cycling friend who's, <laughs> I love anyway, it. Yeah, so we're going to be able to go in the middle of the week when it's not crowded at these viewing sites to be able to see stuff. And, um, you know, pr- primarily it's going to be a lot of travel, I think. Yeah. Travel yeah. And, and, and you're going to be doing sports. I'll, doing I'll, sports, right? Still doing sports. Yeah. What, yeah. Cross-country ski adventures. We want to go see the Northern Lights. Yes. Now you can do it. You can track that and we'll find a place to go. But, yeah, so... It just gives me a lot more time to do this sports stuff. Yeah, more hiking. Yeah. <laughs> well, looking looking back um, at your at your life, how how have your experiences as an Olympi- Olympian and an athlete um, transform you to who you are? Um. Well, I I'm not sure sport transformed me because mm. I think I was born to do sports, and I was oh. and as a very young girl, I was. I was able to do it. My parents were unusual. Um, there was I was in every sport you could do in school. I was never ever told when are you going to grow up or start acting like a girl. Mm-hmm. At a time I have very short hair. At a time when that was unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, not any real significant bullying, but there were plenty of guys in high school that were not particularly nice about 
you know, I was a swimmer and I had muscles. Well, I think back then they called you a tomboy, right? They called me Herc. (laughs) Herc, oh Lord. Yeah. And also, yeah, or you'd be called a tomboy. That that didn't bother me. But the the good thing was that because I was in swimming, where which is a great equalizer, you know, you grow up in the pool with, Mm -hmm. with boys and girls swimming together. And you see the effort that everybody's putting into it. So there is no division. So it was like I didn't really care about what they thought about me at school because I had my swimming, my swim team. Right. And, um, you know, and there were a lot of people that went on to be Olympians um, on my team. Yeah. And so that, you know, I was spared most of the anguish, I think. But my parents at no point ever discouraged me from doing sport which was highly unusual and it was even unusual into the 80s when I was coaching I had students come back after their first uh, quarter first semester at Syracuse as parents had told them no you can't do this anymore you're getting too many muscles oh. and they wouldn't allow them to continue with of course it's my era and this is the mid '80s, yeah, and it's just like, no, really, we got to keep fighting this. These be- anyway, and so the that fight, was- and the fight is the fight is it needs to continue. In, in fact, there's there's yeah. many many fights continuing. Um, yeah, so I I viewed it more as a, now in retrospect, it's more a continuum, and I was able to do sport through the whole thing. I'm very fortunate. I wish that everyone had the access that I have had. Yeah, I think everybody should have it. It's why it was what motivated my work at Special Olympics Southern California for mm-hmm. all those years. It was, you know, this fundamental belief that everyone should have access to sport, period, and um, that it should be a safe environment and all of that. So there's a lot to do in sport and maintaining the environment, creating circumstances where it's fair and where people have the chance to. Um, feel the have the fun and feel the joy and 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 experience the camaraderie that you and I both have experienced Absolutely. through sport. Mm-hmm. Now from the Olympian side of this, that was like a whole other level, different than being on a national team or going to world championships because the whole world opens up to you. I mean, in what other environment does any human being live with people from 190 countries? And sit down and and go to a dining hall and be able to sit down and have a meal with any of those people. And um, or to be in transit, to be living day to day. And it's a kind of it's a bubble that you're in, of course, but it's you're still exposed in ways that you just cannot. Maybe the thing that gets closest is travel if you do travel in a way that allows you to have those experiences. But you and you enter that world having so much in common already. I already know, you know, if you and I are just meeting the first time and we're in the Olympic Village, I already know that you train probably eight hours a day. You're lifting. You're doing some. I mean, I know exactly what you're doing because mm-hmm. there's not that much different that we do, right? Of course not. So I know what you, how you spend your days. I know you're concerned about your diet. You got to keep your health. It's all the same stuff. So we're already in the same mental space. And so we already know a lot about each other. What we don't know is you know, about your family, about your friends, or how did you get started in your sport? So it's, you you cut through all kinds of layers and have this in common. And so you have the, the opportunity to experience the humanity of all of these people. From all walks of life, from all countries, yes. religious backgrounds. Yes. I mean, it, it is it is truly yeah. ex- extraordinary. And, yeah. and the divisions that exist out there, they all melt because they just do. like when you were swimming, you know, with your with your, uh, you know, age group friends, yeah, 
you're all you're all the, you're all the same. It yeah. just boils right down to being human and yeah. and the 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 desire to for competition and to play games and yeah. and to compete. And there's a mutual respect because you know and that's what that's what I experienced with my swim team also. Yes. Um, you know, there because you're there doing it together. Well, you you had the work ethic and the grit and the yeah. and the and the courage. You have so many of the things that allowed you to succeed. Yeah. Um, and and you and you fought and you've continued you've continued to fight. You've continued to yep. be an activist within within the especially the Olympic movement. You, you serve serve on committees all of your life. Yep. So yep. you've been a lifelong devotee um, to sports and making sure that within your power that sports is uh, accessible to yep. as many people as possible, men or women. Yep. Right? Yep. No matter your creed, color, That's right. background, it's ev- it's Everybody should have access to it. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> so for sure. So it's, a, it's a, I'm, you know, reflecting back on a career, I'm very um, satisfied with what I've been able to do so far. And satisfied to a certain degree. I mean, you're dissatisfied because there's always more, but you, <laughs> I've, I've given it my level best. I will continue. And actually my fighting didn't stop. Um, I helped organize women internationally to challenge the UCI on the lack of age group divisions after a certain age. They were bunching 20 group, 20 years of age groups together, which is not fun for the people at the upper end. So we've you now mean got upper end of age. Yeah. So right, we've now because got, it's dangerous too. So you have fifty-five. So it was fifty-five plus. Yeah. It's like, what? So you're competing me in at age seventy-one, competing against fifty-five-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, there was a lot of support. Every other sport does this, where they got five-year age bands. There's a reason for it. It's the reason there's age groups for for juniors, mm-hmm. you know, for young kids. So. Um, that those rules got changed. Yeah. Well, good. I love. I love it. I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm in sure retirement, there's something else. You will. You will find more. More things that more, need to more, be fixed. That need to be fixed. More yes. causes to to champion. That's right. And, and you're going to continue your your athletic. Can't pursuit. help myself. Well, Jan, I hope that um, the lessons that we take from your journey will resonate, especially with the younger women and girls, um, because. Without the sacrifices of and courage of your generation um, to fight for Title IX, et cetera, the female athletes of today would not have the access. Um, and I have a daughter who just finished her collegiate career Yippee. and to, per, to pursue, <laughs> you know, their own athletic whatever dreams. she wants to do. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for giving <clears throat> us uh, perspective, um, and I hope that uh, it's it, there is there is an appreciation of how far the world of athletics and women's athletics has, has come since you were an Olympic athlete. Yeah. Thank you. It, it has come a long way. It's um, hard. It, it, you know, you have to recognize it and celebrate that and keep fighting because it's not something right now. Title nine is up for discussion again. And it's, um, and so I would urge anyone interested in sport to stay informed about this stuff because your, you know, your granddaughters may not have access if your daughter's generation is not active. So I hope that people guard, you know, you have to keep fighting for the rights that you have. They don't just, they're never secured 100%. Well, thank you for yeah. your fight and your willingness to continue that fight. And congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jan would like to leave you with a quote from renowned primatologist Jane Goodall, who's considered the world's foremost expert on chimpanzee behavior. 
She says, what you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Clearly, Jan Palchikov has dedicated herself to making the world of sports a better place. Thank you for joining us here on Sports Life Balance. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us your five-star review and do me a favor and tell a friend. So long for now. Big thanks for joining us here on Sports Life Balance.